We're going to break the story down under four headings this morning. The first is the appearance of God. Genesis 18.1 says, The Lord appeared to Abraham. The oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing near him. So immediately, you have all kinds of questions. It says, the Lord appeared. That's how the story begins. And so as the reader, we are to understand this as an interaction between Abraham and God, which is not surprising at this point in the story. We are in our seventh chapter about focused in on, in the book of Genesis, the life of Abraham. And God has appeared to Abraham or spoken directly to Abraham on at least six different occasions at this point. Genesis 12:1, the Lord said to Abram. Genesis 12:7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said. Genesis 13:14, the Lord said to Abram. Genesis 15:1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Genesis 15:17, we have this theophany where God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and he passes between the divided animals ratifying the covenant between God and Abram. And then in Genesis 17, 1, it says when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him again <clears throat> saying, I am God almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. So it's not surprising to us at all. It's not unusual at all that God would appear, God would speak to, God would have an interaction with Abraham. What is surprising and what's a bit confusing is verse 2. He looked up, this is Abraham, looked up and saw three men standing near him. And so the question immediately is, who are the three men? What's the deal with three men. I thought we were about to get an interaction, a dialogue between Abraham and God, and now we've got three men. So who are they? Well, before we answer that question, we need to say something about the nature of God. And there's all kinds of, we, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of observations we could make about the nature of God from the Bible, but three in particular that make this question especially confusing. First, the Bible is clear. God is not a man. God is not a man. It says this explicitly in the book of Numbers, 1 Samuel, and Hosea. God is not a man. Secondly, God is spirit. The Lord Jesus himself, very well-known passage in John 4 where Jesus speaks with the Samaritan woman at the well, and what does he say in verse 24? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And thirdly, the apostle Paul says on repeat in the New Testament, God is invisible. He says this in Romans 1, Colossians, 1 Timothy. God is invisible. So God is not a man. God doesn't have a physical body, and God is invisible. And all of those things obviously must be true about God, especially in the book of Genesis. We read about a God who has the power to create the universe, just speak it into existence. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient, and he's ever-present. He's omnipresent. And so a God like that obviously cannot have a physical mortal body. He'd be limited by time and space. And that's not who God is. He's the creator of the universe. He's eternal and infinite. So who are the three men? Well, what becomes clear as you continue to read the story is that at least one of them is God himself. It's just obvious from the text repeatedly throughout this interaction between Abraham and these three men, the author identifies the speaker as the Lord. Verse 10, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. 
which is the same thing God said to him in Genesis 17. Again, in verse 13, the Lord asked Abraham, says the Lord in verse 17, 19, 20, 22. They all refer to the Lord, and the Hebrew word there is Jehovah. It is the proper name for the one true God. It means the self-existing one. So this is not a man that Abraham is talking to. It is, and it isn't. It's God himself. And this is really important because one of the arguments against Christianity by the Jews in the first century was an argument from the nature of God. And it was using these exact traits of God. They said, if God is not a man, if God has no physical body, if God is invisible, then Jesus can't be him. God doesn't become a man. That's not how this works. And that's simply not true. So it's obvious if God is the creator of the universe, all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, then he can't, in his eternal divine nature, be mortal. He can't, he can't be a physical body. He can't be a man. But that doesn't preclude God. It doesn't mean that God cannot, if he sees fit, clothe himself in a specific time and place in human history with a human body. Of course he could do that if he wants to. So we're talking about two different things, what God does at a specific point in human history and who God is for all of eternity. God in his eternal divine nature is not a man. He's invisible. He's spirit. But he can, if he wants to, enter into human history in human form, which is exactly what he does here in the very first book of the Bible. Which is interesting because it should have been so clear to the Jews when Jesus arrived on the scene. We've seen this happen before in Genesis 18. So Abraham is talking to three men, but he's also talking to God. The second question then is, why are there three? Okay, so God shows up in human form, but it says there's three men. Why not just one? Some people, when you first read this, they they might think this is a picture of the Trinity. There's three men because there's three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I don't think the text supports that interpretation. If you continue to read the story, it seems clear that one of the three men is God and the other two men are angels who are with him. So look at, we're going to fast forward a little bit, verse 16. It says, the men got up from there and looked out over Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. So all three, they get up, they're walking. Verse 17, then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? You fast forward to verse 22. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So we're going to get into this next week, but God reveals to Abraham that he's going to destroy the city of Sodom. He's come, part of what he's come for is to judge the city of Sodom because of their extreme wickedness. And in verse 22, it says, the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. So they're going to, they're going to issue the judgment while Abraham remains standing before the Lord. So at least two of them, it's plural, the men, but it's not clear. Is it all three left and somehow Abraham is still left there standing with God or is it just two of them? Well, then you get to verse one of chapter 19, which is a continuation of the same story. And it says the two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. And so what we have is God and the two angels who've come with him to judge Sodom. So this is God appearing and interacting with Abraham in human form. That's the appearance of God. Next, we get the response of Abraham. 
So he sees the three men. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you might wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you've said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. And then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Now, one of the things that I have wondered as I've studied this passage is why is there so much detail about Abraham's hospitality? Why do we need to know the side dishes that were served? I mean, why do we need to know the process that went into the creation of the meal for God and the two angels? And there's a couple reasons. The first is that in the broader context of Genesis 18 and 19, this serves as a sharp contrast to how God's representatives were treated in Sodom. So God and his angels, they show up, the Oaks of Mamre, and they are, they are showered with love and respect and honor and hospitality. And then God's angels, they go into Sodom, and you're going to see how they're treated there. It's a sharp contrast. And so it's this powerful illustration. This is how people should treat God. This is how our attitude should be towards God, God's representatives. But sadly, often in the world, people treat God with contempt. People abuse God's representatives. So that's one reason. But beyond that, I think it also, the author of Genesis here is trying to show us how a heart that trusts God's promises, loves God, worships God, will carry that out practically in God's presence. So we've already been told, Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham loves God, he worships God, not perfectly. He's made some big mistakes, but he believes God, he trusts God, and this is what that looks like practically, carried out in God's presence. And look especially at the verbs in this section. So what was Abraham's response? It says he ran to meet God, he bowed before God, and he was eager to serve God. And so all of these are very specific, practical actions that Abraham takes in the story that show us something about what's going on internally. External activity reflects internal heart conditions. So it says he bows before God, which tells us that his view of God is that God is my authority. He is greater than me. He is deserving of my reverence. He is deserving of my obedience. He bows before him. He shows submission to God. He's eager to serve God. And, and it's, not, it's not a shallow, flippant service. This is a very costly service. Not only is it a lot of work to prepare a meal like this, especially at this time in history, there's no convection ovens or microwaves. You know, there's, there's no power mixers. But it's also a very expensive meal. He says to Sarah, need three measures of fine flour into bread. That's about six gallons of fine flour. So this is way, way more bread than you would ever need for three guys. And then it says a tender choice calf. That means like the best one in the whole herd. And I don't know a whole lot about farming, but I do know that a calf, when a calf is born, there is potential to make a lot of money. But that comes later when it's full grown. And if you execute 
If you butcher the calf when it's still a calf, the only reason you would ever do that is because you, want, you have an incredibly special occasion. And, and so we're, we're going to eat this tender choice calf. I've never eaten a tender choice calf, but my understanding is that the meat is way better. It's like a, it's like a delicacy, but it's very costly. The opportunity cost is that calf never grows up to be a full-grown cow that's going to be worth way more money. And so this is a lavish, over-the-top display of hospitality. It says he ran to meet God. But really, the whole exchange, as you read it, is filled with this sense of urgency. Not only did he run to meet the men, it says he hurried back to the tent. He said to his wife, quick, need some bread. He ran to the herd to get the calf. It says the young man hurried to prepare the calf. And so this is a picture of eagerness. That's what's going on. You can, almost, you can almost see this in your mind. It's this flurry of activity. It sort of reminds me of my house on the day of Christmas Eve. So the last few years, we've hosted a bunch of our extended family for Christmas Eve, and this is an all-hands-on-deck situation. So from the youngest to the oldest, even Ruby, who's five, it's like we're all cleaning, we're vacuuming, we're organizing, we're getting stuff put away, we're cooking, we're decorating, we're wrapping presents. And it's like this flurry of activity because everybody, we got church and then everybody's coming over to our house. And the reason is because we want to bless our family. We want it to be a special occasion. And because we're celebrating Christmas Eve, it's a big deal. And so this is the picture I have. This is how Abraham responds to God's appearance. It's with eagerness. It's with energy. And of course, all of this is meant to portray Abraham as a man of faith, a man of humility who worships God, but I think there's more to it even than that. You remember back in Genesis 16, we find out through the story of Hagar that God is a God who sees and hears. He is a God who is close. He's right here. He speaks with Hagar in the desert. He's paying attention, even to the Egyptian slave woman in the story. And then in Genesis 17:1, God says, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I think Abraham's lavish hospitality reveals something about his heart, something about his desires in this moment as he's interacting with God, which is that Abraham wanted to preserve God's presence. I think that's what's going on. He, he, he just, he wanted to be with God. That's why he's so eager. That's why there's so much energy behind his service. He understands the significance of the moment. God has never appeared to him in human form, as far as we know. You think the Bible would have explained that. And so he understands who this is. He understands the significance of the moment, and he just wants to preserve God's presence with him. I think his desire is very similar to the psalmist in Psalm 27, where David famously wrote, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. This is a remarkable experience of intimacy between Abraham and God. I did not know this until I was studying this this week, or at least I had not thought about it before, but of all of the interactions between God and people in the Old Testament, all of them, there is only one 
One singular instance of God sharing a meal with a person. Just one. And this is it. Right here. There's a 19th century Scottish theologian named Robert Candlish who wrote a commentary on Genesis, and he points this out. He says, It is a singular instance of condescension, meaning God coming down. The only recorded instance of the kind before the incarnation of Jesus. On other occasions, this same illustrious being appeared to the fathers and conversed with them, and meat and drink were brought out to him. But in these cases, he turned the offered banquet into a sacrifice, in the smoke of which he ascended heavenward. So he says, it's not that there's not other instances where food and drink are brought out in the presence of God, but in every other instance, they are consumed in fire as a sacrifice. Here, he personally accepts the patriarch's hospitality and partakes of his fare, a greater wonder than the other, implying more intimate and gracious friendship, more unreserved familiarity. He sits under his tree and shares his common meal. Think about that for a minute. He sits under his tree and shares his common meal. I want you just to imagine for a moment, picture in your mind somebody that you would love to meet who's like famous and that most people don't have access to. It might be a musician that you're really into, maybe it's a movie star, maybe it's an athlete, maybe it's a politician or a writer, just somebody who you would be utterly starstruck if you saw that person. Okay, you have that person in your brain. Now, imagine if you got to meet that person. Like in some, so you get backstage passes to a concert, maybe it's Chris Stapleton or something, or, or you go to a book signing, or you, maybe you run into them at the airport and you get to sit down and have a conversation. I remember when I was growing up, I, I was thinking about this, who, who would be the person in my life that I would be most starstruck to meet? There's not many people anymore because I'm kind of old and boring, but when I was a kid, I grew up in Chicago in the 90s. Okay, so I'm not a huge basketball fan now, but in the 90s, we watched every single Bulls game for years. I mean, they won six championships. And so I was like a Bulls maniac. I had the starter jacket, the pullover with the front pocket, you know what I'm talking about? And so the person more than anyone I wanted to meet was Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael Jordan was an absolute superstar back in the day. And if I could have gone, I, got, I went to one Bulls game at the United Center. It was like one of the best experiences of my life. But if I got to go to the Bulls game, and they won, by the way, in overtime against the Sonics, it was awesome. <laughs> but if I had gotten to go back into the locker room after the game and meet Michael Jordan and get his autograph and have a little conversation with him, I mean, that would have been like probably top three experiences of my life. I mean, that would have been unbelievable. So just picture whoever that is for you and getting to meet them in person. Now, what would be a cooler experience? Whatever that is in your brain or that same person having them over to your house for dinner. Now, everybody's a little bit different. Some of you might say, hey, I'll take the, the going in the locker room at the Bulls game. But I think if Michael Jordan could come over to my house And I'm talking without his agent, without his bodyguards, without his PR person, just MJ, and sit down at my dining room table for dinner. 
that would be way cooler. That'd be way cooler. It totally changes the relational equation because that huge, famous, otherworldly person is now inside your little bubble. That is a step towards really knowing them. That's like a step towards real friendship. So that's just at least a little picture of what's going on here. And obviously, Abraham already knows God. He's experienced God in the past. But God shows up here with a whole new level of intimacy in Abraham's life. And Abraham understands the significance of it. And so he's eager, he's excited just to serve God, just to be with him, just to enjoy this moment. That's the response of Abraham. Next, we get the purpose of the appearance. Because God has never showed up like this before in the book of Genesis, and he doesn't show up like this again until the arrival of Jesus, it begs the question, why is he here? (laughs) What is he doing? Why is this so significant that he shows up in this incredible way? Verse 9, where's your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he answered, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. So this is not new information. God has repeatedly told Abraham, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. He's already told him that Sarah will be the mother, and he's already told him that the child is going to be born in about a year. We saw that in chapter 17, verse 21. So none of this is new information. There's no clarification here, nothing added at all. He virtually says the same thing he already said. About a year, Sarah is going to have a son. And so the reason God becomes a man and shows up personally and physically on Abraham's front door and shares a meal with him is simply to remind Abraham. It's simply to reassure him of the certainty of the fulfillment of the promise. You're going to have a son. Sarah's going to have a son. It's going to be in about a year. It's just reassurance. And this should tell us so much about what God is like. Abraham and Sarah, they've been waiting for the son for 25 years at this point. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old. They've never been able to get pregnant. And because of that, we've seen them struggle with doubt. Tells us in the New Testament, Abraham's a man of faith. His faith was strengthened. He was sure God was able to do what he said he was going to do. But that doesn't mean they didn't have bad moments in the 25-year span. They've struggled with doubt. We're going to see in the next few verses, Sarah is still still struggling with doubt. But that's not a reason in and of itself. God, God doesn't need their faith to make this happen. God can do whatever he wants. We already saw that in Genesis 12. Abraham and Sarah, they go down to Egypt. They make some bad decisions, and God totally bails them out. And it never says that God has a discussion with them. God just does it. He just, he just rescues them out of Egypt, blesses them on the way in spite of themselves. And so God doesn't need their help. God doesn't need them to go along with the plan. If God wants Sarah to get pregnant and have a son in a year's time, it's going to happen. And he's already told them that it's going to happen. And yet, he comes down in the form of a man and reassures them personally, which is wild. And I don't know why else God would do that except simply out of love. This is just an incredible act of kindness and gentleness on the part of God toward Abraham and Sarah. He just says, hey, guys, listen, I know. 
It's been 25 years. I know you've been waiting. I know I already told you this, but look at me. I am going to make good on my promise. You're going to have a son. Trust me. You can trust me. I think that's a big part of what's going on here. It's a loving, gentle reassurance. But there's another, even greater reason as well, which is to foreshadow the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. It is no coincidence that the new covenant in Christ was inaugurated when God became a man and shared a meal with his disciples. Now, of course, Jesus came to do more than just share an intimate relationship with his followers. He came to die on the cross so your sins could be forgiven. But Jesus also used the imagery of a meal to communicate that you can experience an intimate relationship with God. And he did this a lot. In John chapter 6, he's speaking with a huge crowd of people. And it says in verse 53, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So what Jesus taught is not only can we share a meal with him, meaning we can have an intimate relationship with God, but Jesus taught he is the meal. He is the substance of the meal. Not literally, like the Catholics teach. The the Catholics teach something called transubstantiation, so that when they bless the wafer and they bless the juice or the wine, it actually literally becomes the biological material of the body and blood of Christ, which is not true. It's obviously not true. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is a metaphor, but it's a powerful metaphor. Jesus' broken body on the cross and Jesus' blood that was shed are the only thing that can give you life, spiritually, eternally. That's his point. It's the only thing that can give you life. Because Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary death. He died in your place to take the penalty that your sin deserves. That's the message of the gospel. And when you acknowledge that, when a person will say, you know what, yes, I am guilty, I deserve God's punishment, and my only hope, my only chance at life, forgiveness, righteousness, is what Jesus did for me on the cross. Not only are you made righteous, Not only are your sins forgiven, that is a wonderful truth without which we would have no hope. Not only do you have eternal life, but also you have the opportunity to experience intimate relationship with God, just like Abraham did in Genesis 18. Jesus says this again in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 20 says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. What is he saying? He's saying, you'll enjoy intimacy with me. We'll be friends 
will have a relationship. There'll be personal knowledge of one another. And this is a very important point because Revelation 3 is written long after Jesus rose and ascended back into heaven. Decades later, Jesus comes to John on the island of Patmos and he says, hey, write this letter, send it to these churches. But this is what he says to the Laodicean Christians decades later who would have never seen him. He's saying this to people who never saw him physically in bodily form. And yet he says, I will share a meal with you too. Just like I did with the disciples. And so don't think, well, I'm not Abraham. God didn't show up on my front door in the form of a human being with two angels. God didn't ask me to cook him lunch. And of course that's true. So we don't, we don't want to extrapolate more than we ought to from Genesis 18. Genesis 18 is a story that is utterly unique to Abraham and Sarah. But God did come down in the form of a man to share a meal with you in Christ. He did. God extends an offer of intimate relationship to you in Christ. And I think what the Bible teaches is it's an even better offer. It's an even greater form of intimacy and and an experience of God than the one offered to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18. So I want you to consider this question this morning. How eager are you to experience God's intimate presence in your life? How eager are you? What kind of enthusiasm, what kind of energy are you bringing to your opportunity to know God, to talk to Him, to hear from Him, to serve Him? Now, in one sense, God is always present in your life, whether you like it or not, even if you're not a Christian, (laughs) because He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. God is in this room right now. He's everywhere. You can't escape God in one sense, but in a deeper sense, if you're a Christian, he's even more present because the Bible says if you're a Christian, you're born again, his spirit lives in you. God is united with your heart and mind in a unique and special way. But there is an even deeper experience of God's presence than just being a Christian and having his spirit that is possible, but it's not guaranteed. It's not automatic and you should pursue it. So What I'm not saying is that God's presence with you changes depending on what you do. God's presence doesn't change at all, but your experience of his presence will be different depending on the energy you bring to it, depending on the effort and enthusiasm you bring to it. Theologians call these the means of grace, which I think is a good term, the means of grace. So the grace of God, it comes from him. He does everything. You do nothing. It's a free gift, Ephesians 2 says. Grace, that, that God would save you, that he would rescue you from sin in Christ. It's grace. But how do you experience that grace? Day to day, practically. I'm not talking about how does a person become a Christian. As a Christian, how do you walk in that grace? How do you experience the grace of God moment by moment? Theologians call these the means of grace. David Mathis, there's many, many people who've articulated this different ways, but wrote a book on the means of grace, and he categorizes them in three ways, and I think this is really helpful. He says, you can hear his voice, you can have his ear, and you can belong to his body. And this is not something that people concocted and said, okay, this is how we can experience God. These are the means that God has given you. You can hear his voice, 
through reading, studying, meditating, memorizing, hearing the preaching of the Bible. The Bible is the inspired word of God for you. God wants to speak to you. You can hear his voice and then you can have his ear. So he talks, but he also listens. You can have his ear through prayer and fasting, silence and solitude. And you can belong to his body. You can belong to his body. You can serve him. You can worship him through fellowship, corporate worship, baptism, and communion with a local church. These are the means God has given in the new covenant so that every single son or daughter in his kingdom can experience him in intimate relationship. And it's a, it's a relationship that grows just like your relationship with a person. I've been married to my wife 13 years and we are way closer. We know each other way better than we did in year three or year six because that's how relationships work is you grow in intimacy and knowledge of one another. This is how you grow in your relationship with God. But the question is what kind of energy and enthusiasm are you bringing to hearing his voice? or having his ear, or belonging to his body. Something to think about. So that's the purpose of the appearance. And lastly, this section concludes with the response of Sarah. God appears, get the response of Abraham, we get the purpose, why did he appear? And now we get the response of Sarah. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, Will I have delight? So how does she respond? She laughs. And it's a laugh of disbelief. It's a scoffing laugh. Like the idea of getting pregnant in her old age is a funny joke. I mean, that's, that's what's going on. And we've already seen in the story that waiting on the fulfillment of God's promise can have different effects on a person over time. I'm sure you guys have experienced this. Sometimes the effect is distraction. You, you just get focused on some other outcome. You're just not that concerned with whatever the promise of God was or is anymore. Sometimes the effect is distrust in God. So you say, well, I really want this outcome, but God hasn't given it to me yet, and so I've got to go make it happen on my own. This is what Sarah and Abraham did with Hagar. But very often what can also happen is someone waiting on God will become disillusioned. Disillusionment is so prevalent among Christians, especially as you get older. And, and it's like this attitude, you develop this attitude where you would never say this, but it's like, well, the Christian life just doesn't really work. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't, even, and you might even continue to sort of half-heartedly follow Christ, go through the motions, but in your heart of hearts, you just think, eh, it doesn't really work. Uh, it, it hasn't worked out the way I thought it would. When you become disillusioned, you become distrusting of other Christians, especially those who are really serious about Christ. You become skeptical of people who are enthusiastic or eager about God's mission and God's word. You begin to be cynical. People who look like they're really enthusiastic about the Lord, you think, well, they're either fake or you know, they have some other angle, some other motivation for their spirituality. And there's all kinds of different ways that disillusionment can play out in your life. But I think this is sort of where Sarah is. I don't think she knows this is God. Now, it's not entirely clear, but I don't think she knows it's God. 
at first. It's just some guys who showed up to talk to her husband. She overhears this audacious claim. Sarah's going to have a baby in about a year, and she thinks, (laughs) yeah, right. Don't you know I've been waiting 25 years? I'm 90 years old. Are you serious? Going to have a baby in about a year. Verse 13, but the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Now, she's right at the tent. She's listening. She, she thinks to herself, she doesn't say it out loud. She thinks to herself, yeah, right. No way. She laughs to herself. This is something that's internally in her thoughts. But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Okay, so she didn't know before now. Sarah knows this is God. (laughs) Because he's just read her mind. God couldn't see her. Couldn't see her reaction. She's, She's not visible. She's behind the tent. She doesn't say it out loud. She's just thinking to herself. And God immediately knows her thoughts and her heart and addresses them. And what's interesting here is God is not angry. He's not angry. He's not vindictive. He does correct her. And he corrects her with a rhetorical question. He says, is anything impossible for the Lord? The answer, of course, is no. (laughs) Nothing is impossible for the Lord. And then we get this abrupt end to this part of the story. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. So she knows this is God. She knows she's found out. And her instinct is to hide. Nope, you got it wrong. (laughs) You know, you must have read somebody else's mind. That wasn't me. I, I didn't laugh. She does the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. Hide from God, lie to God. So instinctual. God replied, no, you did laugh. And then that's it. Then the story moves on. And so it ends kind of abruptly. And something that we miss as English readers of this is that there is a play on words in the Hebrew. So the word to laugh or laughter, it is the word Isaac. So the name Isaac means laughter, and she's talking about laughing. And so the way you would read this in Hebrew is, I didn't Isaac, and God says, no, you did Isaac. And then in Genesis 21, Sarah laughs again when Isaac is born, but this time it's not a scoffing, doubting laugh. It is a laughter of joy. It is a laughter of delight. And so I think the point here is she, she is being corrected by God but it's a a gentle correction. And God says, when you wait on me, when you believe nothing is impossible for me, the result is not disillusionment. The result is delight. And so just two things to think about this week as we close, as far as application. Number one, eagerly enjoy the presence of God through the means of grace. And we talk about this all the time. This is really what you were made for. And I think there's, there's all kinds of outcomes that I want in my life. I want my kids to love Christ. I want them to grow up and be successful and well-adjusted. <laughs> I want them to have great marriages. I want to have a bunch of little grandbabies. I want everyone to be healthy, no cancer, no death, no car accidents. I want the church to grow and be strengthened. And I want to see lots of people saved. There's all kinds of outcomes that I want. And none of those things are guaranteed. They're just not. They're not guaranteed, but what is guaranteed is God says, Darren, you can have me. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And one day, I'm going to stand before him face to face. 
and I'm going to enter into eternal paradise. Holy and righteous. A son of God with an inheritance in his kingdom. And so I get to look forward to that day and right now I get to have him right here. I get to experience him today no matter what else is going on. And so that's, what, that's what we were made for, brothers and sisters. That's what we were made for. And there's so many distractions. There's so much pain. There's so much going on in our lives. And so I just encourage you, enjoy the presence of God. Carve out time in your life. It's kind of like, I really enjoy exercise. Not everybody enjoys exercise, but I think everybody can get to the point where you enjoy exercise because you begin to experience the benefits of it. And you're like, oh, this is so good for me. Why would I not want to do this? Well, the reason you want to do it is because it's inconvenient. It's painful. It's difficult. Your body starts to bark at you and say, ah, I'm sore here. I don't want... But you realize I was made to move. I have a body that was made to move. And so when I move... (laughs) I'm experiencing God's design, and this is way deeper and way more important than that. And it is worth it to discipline yourself, to carve out time, learn to enjoy sitting in the presence of God. Number two, pray like nothing is is impossible for the Lord. Is anything impossible for God? Everyone in this room would say, no, nothing's impossible for God. But my guess is that there are some of you here and there are certain things in your soul that you think, except for this. (laughs) God will never do this. God will never save this extended family member who hates him. God will never redeem this wayward child. God's not going to heal this sick person who has a devastating diagnosis. And you might be right about that. You don't have a promise from God like Abraham and Sarah did that they were going to have a son in a year's time. So that, I'm not saying just whatever you want, God's like a genie, just believe hard enough. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that God can do whatever he wants. Nothing is impossible for him. And I think the, the heart that stops praying big, crazy, impossible prayers is a heart that is beginning to go down the road of disillusionment. This stuff doesn't really work. God doesn't really love me that much. God doesn't really care. You can ask God and he might say, no, I have something better. But you should ask. If you care, if you're burdened for someone or something, pray like nothing is impossible for God. If nothing else you will gain an intimate experience with the Lord. And oftentimes, God will answer those prayers. But you got to trust Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for just Your incredible kindness towards us. That You would condescend. You would become a human being. And that's not just in Jesus. It's not the first time this happened. You've shown us since the very beginning, Genesis 18, that you are willing to come down and humble yourself and get on our level and look us in the eye and say, you can trust me. I'm right here. I'm going to do good to you. You can trust me. God, help us to trust you. Help us, God, like Abraham, to understand that the real prize, it's not a son It's not an outcome. It's not money. It's not health. It is you. And you've already given yourselves to us. So we just thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you made that possible at great expense to yourself by dying on the cross.
Help us to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.